So if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 16, and this morning we're going to be in verses 16 through 24, and I'll put it up on the screen, and uh, you can read along, and we're going to go through this, and then we're going to spend some time talking about what Jesus is really saying here. And for those of you who, aren't, uh, who are just joining us for the first time this morning, we're, we're going through the upper room, which is the, um, the time that Jesus was with his disciples, you know, the Last Supper, um, and uh, it was right before he would be eventually arrested and then tried and then killed and then ultimately would be resurrected. So this is really a long period of time that Jesus is spending telling his disciples some incredibly important last final things that they need to know in order to be prepared to live life without him right there by their side. So John 16, 16 says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father, So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask Of the Father, in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is our passage this morning where Jesus is clearly giving some bad news to his disciples, and they are totally confused. He's making it very clear that... What they have to look forward to is some very hard times that will eventually be followed by some joy, some good times. This makes me think of about a month ago, my family and I were going on, we were on vacation, and um, we often will drive through uh, an area in central and southern California when we're visiting family, uh, and it drives right by this huge theme park, amusement park called Magic Mountain. Magic Mountain is the biggest roller coasters you've ever seen in your life, and there's also nothing else around it, so they really stand out. And every time we would drive by it, our son would see it, and he would be like, I want to go there, I want to go there, I want to go there. Now, I grew up going there, and I remember how big these things were, and I remember how scary they were, and I remember a lot of times that I went, I got in line, I thought I would go on a ride, and then at the end, I was just like, nope, not ready for this, not going to do it. I mean, I legitimately thought that people just died daily on these things, and that would probably happen to me. 
And so I was like, all right, are you sure? Are you sure? Do you think you'd actually go on these things? We don't want to plan there and go there and then like, you know, show up and then be like, let's ride the teacup ride, you know? And so he said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I believe I can do this. I can do it. And then his sister was like, oh, absolutely. I want to go too. So we got some cousins to go. We planned a day for it. We went, we drove all the way there. We parked our cars. We, uh, and we were, as we were heading in, like walking miles before we even seemed to get into the park, as we're heading in, we're all talking, what is the first thing that we're going to go on? What's the first thing that we're going to go on? First ride, because that's the one. That's the one where the lines are the shortest. Let's get it. Let's get it. And let's, let's just know that we're going to do it. So we decided we're going to go on this ride called Goliath. Uh, that sounded like a good ride to start with. So we said, you know, it doesn't go upside down. It doesn't do any crazy loops or anything. This will be a good one to get the kids used to roller coasters on, right? Um, And so we get in the park, and we make our way. We run for Goliath, and we get in line, and it's like a a 15-minute line. It's great. So we're in line for Goliath, and we're psyching ourselves up. We're saying, this is going to be great. The son is so excited. He's so excited. He's so excited. And we get on the roller coaster, and one cousin is like, there's no way I'm going on this roller coaster. There's no way. I'm not doing it. And we were like, come on. You can do it. You should do it. And he's like, I'm not doing it. So he stands in like this observation area and watches us go on the roller coaster. We get in it. I'm sitting next to Tegan. Uh, Davey's in the back with her cousin. Ellie's there somewhere. Um, and uh, we're all on this roller coaster car with everybody And we start to go up, we start to go up, we start to go up, we start to go up. And we go higher and higher and higher and higher. And and it appears that we're going higher than anything else in the park is. And everyone's excited and everyone's nervous. And then we finally slowly make our way over the top. And we make our way over the top and we begin the very slow start to our drop. It is at this point, okay, on Goliath. It is at this point on Goliath. And now, by the way, just to let you know, this roller coaster goes underground, okay? The drop is so long that you go into a tunnel, uh, which you can't tell from the parking lot, okay? You're actually going lower than, like, sea level or whatever it is uh, because they want to make sure the drop is as long as humanly possible. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going, and it never seems to end. It is at this point when Tegan is sitting next to me, like, laughing maniacally, like an evil person, right? Right? that something occurs to me in this split second. My entire life freezes. It's like I'm able to stop. I'm able to step out of it. I'm able to take all the time that I need. You know, my life's flashing before my eyes and everything. And I realize a tremendous amount in this one split second. Uh, The first thing I realize is this is the greatest moment of my son's life. He is so, so going to love this. The second thing that immediately comes to my mind is I should not have put my daughter on this roller coaster. As I look down at it, And then we drop, and then we go back up, and then we go through the roller coaster. And I turn around and I look at a daughter who has clearly been broken. She's been broken. Like she is like, you know, there's nothing behind the eyes anymore. It's just, she's dead behind the eyes. She's like, this, she's gone. The life is gone, she's done, and I've done it to her. It was uh, the most fun and terrifying experience, depending on who you were on the roller coaster. And needless to say, my daughter tried another one after this, but she um, uh, was done after two and did actually really enjoy. There was a teacup ride, uh, and that was just enough for her. 
If you go on a roller coaster, one of the fun and thrilling things about it is just the sheer amount of drops and then going back up that it consists of. We pay money, we plan our day around the rush that comes from this kind of a ride or an experience. But as much as we want our roller coasters to look like this and feel this way, what we don't want to have look like this is our lives. And the unfortunate reality of life is that it is a roller coaster. Is that as much as we all want for life to be this nice, easy, slow progression, it actually is a lot of ups and a lot of downs and sometimes upside-down corkscrew twists where we don't know which way is even up anymore. Life is a roller coaster. And this is exactly what Jesus is describing to the disciples, and he's warning them and preparing them for. He's saying to them, there are going to be really difficult times. And if you want to know what a difficult time feels like, probably that. There will be times in your life when you are right here, and you are looking at what's coming, and you're going, I don't want this. And there will also be times of great joy. This is what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We can relate to this, and his disciples have experienced some ups and downs, but nothing like what he's preparing them for now. You see, up until now, following Jesus for the disciples has been a pretty interesting ride. It's been a mostly positive experience. Each of the disciples had their own personal reasons for following Jesus, for saying, yes, I'll follow you. Um, Some of them were just young guys who had been passed over by rabbis for religious training and instruction. And so as a result of that, they decided, okay, I'll just spend my life in kind of a a job where I uh, work to live. I don't live to work. And so they would become fishermen. And we have brothers who fish together. And that's what they do. They wake up in the morning, they cast out their nets, they bring them in, and then they go and enjoy their night together. And they go back out and they do it again. They're earning money, they're living with their family and enjoying life together. And to those, uh, Jesus would come and say, I want you to give up this life and follow me. And their response would be, okay. There was something about his call that made them go, I will find life by following you. And I'm willing to give up this life that I have in order to do it. Some were sinners, which we kind of say ironically because as Jesus would teach us in his ministry, we're all sinners. But these were the people that everyone could agree on were sinners, right? There were some who were tax collectors, who were prostitutes, people who were engaged in lifestyles that that no one approved of and had made mistakes and were doing things that were regrettable. And so when Jesus came to these people, And they recognized the sin in their lives, and they repented of this sin. And Jesus said, follow me. They said, I will follow you. Uh, I will find life in you as my life now starts over. And for these people, this was a whole new life. Like, this was like, I've got to start from scratch, and I've got to try to not blow it again this time around. Some disciples were uh, already disciples of John the Baptist, They were following him, and they were baptizing people with him. These people had devoted their lives to the Messiah coming and trying to uh, anticipate that happening. And so they were following John, and and when they would eventually come to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah? And he would tell them that he is, that some of them would actually choose to follow Jesus. 
You see, everyone who chose to follow him, every one of his disciples, uh, would choose it because they believed that they could find life with him. But they were coming from a totally different set of backgrounds and experiences. Some of them had been following the cause of Jesus their whole lives. Others were shameful and broken and sinful people in society. Others were just sort of regular people, just kind of living out their lives, but realizing that there's got to be more to life than what I'm doing right now, casting these nets and fishing every day. And so following Jesus made sense. There's something about his teaching to us uh, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the bread that, that will leave you not hungry again. I am the water that will leave you not thirsting. All these things that Jesus promises in his ministry resonate with people. And so they say, I will follow you because I believe life can be found in you. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you've made that choice. Something that Jesus has said, something that God has said, something that's been communicated to you about the kingdom of God has struck a chord with you, and the result is you've gone, I will find life in Jesus. So I'm going to follow him. I'm going to give my life to being a disciple of his, and whatever that brings with it. The sinner finds new life from the things that have been wrecking their life. The searcher finally has answers and they have a foundation that they can build their life on instead of questions and uncertainty. The journey begins at that point. You might be somebody who came from a Christian family. You've sort of, um, you know, been seeking God for your whole life, it seems. You've been, you've believed in God, you've pursued God, and, um, and that's led you to recognize that life is found in Jesus, your faith might look the same as those that, that brought you up, that raised you. It may look completely different from those who raised you and brought you up. Maybe God found you at the very bottom. All the mistakes and the messes that you had made when your life had fallen apart. For many of you, you're just doing your thing. You're working. You're going to school. Maybe trying to raise a family. Just figuring out your place in the world. And you see that Jesus brings life. And so you begin following him. For whatever reason, when we begin to make that choice and we begin to follow him, that's where discipleship starts. And so the disciples experience kind of this in their ministry with Jesus up until this point. They see him do miraculous things. They see him accomplish great things. They see him heal people. And he speaks as one who has authority. And that's a big deal. What that means is that all the voices we hear in the world, all the things that people are saying to us about this is what's really true, and this is the way things really ought to be, and this is what a person really is, and this is who you really should be, and this is what real joy looks like, and what real uh, sin even looks like, that there's something about the teaching of Jesus that you recognize there's authority in those words. It's not just what happens when a bunch of people get together and make up their own stuff, which is what everything else seems to be. And so... Begin to follow him, and you experience his authority, you experience his truth, you experience life that comes from him, and that can be a really good thing. Things begin to improve. Maybe it's your emotional well-being. Maybe it's your relationships with your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's the outlook you have on your job. 
the beginnings of discipleship, we have a lot to figure out, a lot to learn. We get a, become a part of community and live our faith with other people. We realize it's a team sport. We become accustomed to God's word and we get familiar with it. And we, we say, I've got to discipline myself to learn how to live uh, with this thing as my source of life and strength and not just my own effort and all this other stuff around me in the world. We may be following Jesus as the only member of our family who does so. We may be following Jesus with a family of Jesus followers. We may be trying to raise and build a family of people who are Jesus followers. But for whatever thing that we end up doing in this discipleship journey with Jesus, just like the disciples, oftentimes in the beginning, we experience this kind of like what they've experienced for a few years. You see these things God's doing, and they're incredible. You, you hear the truth of Jesus, and it has authority. There are hard times, there are difficult times, you get called to step out in faith, but you keep going forward, and it keeps making sense. We now find ourselves in the upper room with Jesus, and so much of what he's saying to his disciples, especially in our passage here, changes things. Jesus says to them this in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. That is not a good verse. That is not a good thing to hear from the guy that you're following. The guy who seems to have the ability to predict the future. Other people don't, but he does. And what does he say the future is going to look like? It's not good, guys. It's not good, disciples. He says, you will weep and you will lament with what comes next. On top of that, the world will rejoice with what is happening. What Jesus is describing to them is some major suffering. He's not just talking about leaving them. He knows what's coming, and he knows that it's not at all what they expect. He's going to be arrested. They're going to scatter. He's going to be publicly tried and humiliated and beaten and ultimately sentenced to death. He is not going to win the trial, even though he's innocent. He's not going to stop the beatings, even though he could. He's not going to jump down off the cross, even though he could. He's not going to stop them from mocking him, even though he could. can't tell you how many times prior to becoming a Christian, I thought, why didn't he stop the trial, stop the mockings? get down off the cross. And how many people have said that to me? Why can't he? Why didn't he if he could? And Jesus knows that these things aren't going to happen, and his disciples are going to have to watch all of that. You see, discipleship is about to get really, really tough for these guys. It's about to get harder than it's ever been up till this point. Following Jesus is going to, at a certain point, bring greater suffering. It will. This is the hardest truth of following Jesus. It's a guarantee of following Jesus. Is that if you follow Jesus, there is going to be a point when you will, it will lead to great suffering. It will. And Jesus is telling the disciples, it's coming and it's going to be a doozy. We know that this is true. We know that there's a certain point in time when you're just kind of having a good time. And then eventually you're going to come over that rise and you're going to go, oh, this is what following Jesus now means. 
we'll say to ourselves, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't know that was coming in the beginning. I didn't know life would take this kind of a turn for me. But it will involve greater suffering. And I say greater suffering because we all experience suffering. And whether you follow Jesus or not, you'll suffer. But there will be things that will happen, situations that you will face and hopefully not just run away from, that are actually there because you're a disciple of Jesus and you're following him. That's going to be a part of life. Why is it important that Jesus says this and that we say this and that we accept this? Because hard times don't mean that we're on the wrong path. They don't mean that we got on the wrong roller coaster. It doesn't mean that we made the wrong choice. Hard times don't mean that we're outside of God's will for our lives. Hard times will happen. Amen. Amen. You see, there's something that happens in discipleship, though, when we begin to face the suffering. Even if Jesus warns us about it, is that all of those who are walking on this path where they're following Jesus, playing follow the leader, you know, you get to a point where the suffering happens, and at that point, there begins to be a fork in the road. There does. So many thousands of people followed Jesus at one point or another, showed up to these incredible miraculous mass events and healings and, and, and proclamations of the gospel. There were people pressing in on him from all sides, people desperate to just touch him because they knew the power that he had. There were so many people in crowds, the disciples were clearly annoyed by them, like you read about that. He had to get in a boat at one point and go out on the water just so that he could get some space so that he could talk to everybody. That's the kinds of crowds that followed Jesus. Because they saw life there. They saw something there in him that was worth following. But when it starts to get difficult, when following Jesus begins to mean more than just the thing he gave me in the beginning that I wanted and needed, then most will choose to go one way. And some will choose to go another way. But there is a fork on the road. And as much as we desperately want to believe that there isn't, there is. And so what we see is we see those who will see the suffering coming and will say, or will be in it and will say, I didn't sign up for this. And I don't think God wants this for me. And they will take a turn on that fork in the road. And that road that they now begin to walk down is a faith that is essentially what the Bible calls lukewarm. It's a lukewarm faith. It's a faith that says, at this point, from this point on, I'm only going to do what's easy. I'm only going to do what's natural. I'm only going to do what makes sense. If I see this God thing solving a problem, fixing a situation, making a holiday more special, providing some substance for this family that I'm trying to build, uh, helping me uh, in a marriage that's falling apart because it means the other person can't ditch me, Whatever thing this helps, I'm, I'm in there for that. Otherwise, I don't think so. We see this happen a lot in the ministry, which is why the group of those who are truly following Jesus' disciples stays relatively small. We face this when the suffering comes. 
when the great suffering comes. You're confronted with these harder choices, and you begin to see that following Jesus is going to mean choosing to live your life differently. And the reason that we do see it as a fork in the road is because the, tr the truth is we can just choose to go another way. We can just choose. No one's making us do this. No one's making us follow Jesus. We can just choose to go the other way. And most people will. One path leads to a version of following Jesus that conveniently works around my life. It conveniently works around the life that I would like to live. And the other leads to Jesus actually being the Lord of my life. The disciples saw this again and again and again. And they faced this choice again and again and again, and it did seem to get easier for them over time to make the choice to not choose the path of a lukewarm faith. We see this, these two different types of faith played out in so many different ways in our lives. The Bible itself is either something that I will return to on a regular basis Especially, really, when it involves the discipline to do that when I don't always feel like it. Maybe it's something, God's word, that I'll return to with a community of people instead of just on my own whenever it feels good to me to do it or is easy. It's not just something that I'm going to look to on holidays or on funerals or times that, or weddings or, or uh, God's word won't just be something that can be reduced to a bumper sticker or a sign I hang up in my house or a coffee mug or a t-shirt or, or a social media post. We all know how, how important those are. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's important, you know, but, uh, but when it's reduced to just that or the Bible is going to guide and shape me. If I disagree with it, Will I figure out that it's got to be something wrong with the translation or, um, you know, I don't want to be some kind of fanatic or some kind of zealot, right? I'm not going to do everything that's in there. That would be crazy. No one does. Or choose to say, this is the point when it matters most, that I actually submit my life and myself to what God's word says is true. I can love my neighbor, but do I have to love them as myself? One's a lot easier than the other. One involves suffering. Maybe I'll just be nice to them until they blow it somehow or until it becomes inconvenient. That's a little more realistic. Maybe I can sacrificially love them instead. One path makes for a happier neighborhood, maybe for a while, helps me feel good about myself as a neighbor. The other transforms a neighborhood, usually leaves that other person feeling better about themselves. Church can be something that I do when it's convenient, in a season when I've got time for it, and it's something that I approach like most things in society, like I'm a consumer and I'm looking for things that will help me. Or it's something that I can commit myself to regardless of the season in my life. It's something that I can make a priority, and it's something that I can say, I'm going to actually give of myself to others. I'm going to serve others in this place and not just look for something that helps me. If following Jesus means generosity with the money that God's given me and the resources he's given me, I can be generous when it's convenient and when it still benefits me in the end, or I can be generous when I have maybe some extra money, you know, now that everything else is taken care of, after I've spent everything that I need on all of the stuff that I want and that I need in my life right now, then God can have whatever's left when I'm done with it. That's reasonable. That seems, you know, still more generous than maybe other people. 
or maybe I, I, I can be generous with my money as long as I can, you know, post online about it, or when it helps the business that I'm a part of, or, you know, somehow benefits me to be helping in some way that people can see. There's the easy path, and I can be selective, and I can base what I give and my generosity around what works best for me, or I can believe in a generosity that is sacrificial, that actually requires me to live my life differently. Because what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, when he begins to talk about generosity, is is a generosity that means my standard of living will actually be different than it otherwise would have been if I wasn't a follower of Jesus. One of these roads involves more difficult things. The other, an easier path, an easier life. I'm not talking about being perfect, about earning your salvation, about being perfectly obedient in all situations. I'm talking about a a life of following Jesus where everything has to fit in with what's comfortable for me versus a life that's sacrificial. This is a very hard thing for us to choose to do because we live in a culture that is fairly consumer-driven where comfort is, is king, is key for us. We have so many options, and any even slight inconvenience, we can fix that problem, and if we can, we will. And to us, that's the way life is supposed to work. I mean, how big does the problem have to be before you go on Amazon and you're like, there's got to be a solution for this, right? Someone's got to have invented a solution for this. Right before this message this morning, I got on Amazon and I just typed in the word corn, okay? I typed in the word corn, because I was interested in how many conveniences there are to help us eat corn. It's the season, right? We're all dealing with all those problems of, you know, hot corn cobs and cutting the kernels off the cob and making a mess all over our entire kitchen, you know. There are corn peelers and corn, uh, you know, cutters that will cut all the kernels perfectly off the corn cob that you need. You can buy one of those on Amazon or a few different versions of those. You're like, I got to get that. You should get that. Absolutely. We're not going to hold our corn like a bunch of barbarians, right? No, there's corn cob holders that you can stick in that look like mini corn cobs and will keep your hands nice and clean. There are corn cob trays. You don't need to put that thing on your plate. You don't need to get in all the other stuff. There's a tray that looks like a little ear of corn that you can lay your corn cob into with its corn cob holders after for the ones that you didn't decide to peel the corn off of. How about butter? You know, there's like glue stick inventions for butter. How many people have seen this? Yeah. Now you're all going to look it up, right? It's amazing. You put a stick of butter in this thing, and then it comes out like a glue stick, and it's curved. Of course it's curved because the corn cob is curved, guys. We don't need this garbage with flat butter on our corn cob. No, it contours, right? And then the hotter the corn cob, the more it's going to contour to each individual row. Eating corn on the cob could not be more convenient and easy for us. We can fix this problem. I mean, let's be honest, right? We live in a world in which problems can get solved and we can find a way to be comfortable again. One of the most unbelievably uncomfortable things for us is choosing to lean in to discomfort and suffering when we could go the other way. And Jesus says to his disciples who have been faithful to him. There's going to be great suffering. And it's not even suffering that everyone will experience, just you guys. 
Not, not, everyone won't be able to relate to you. There will be people rejoicing while you're suffering, which will make you feel like maybe you shouldn't be doing whatever you're doing that's leading to this suffering. But he encourages them about this suffering. He likens it to giving birth. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I've asked my mom about this. She has confirmed. It's very painful. Very painful. Give birth to a child. But... On the rare occasion, my mom will remind me just how long the labor was um, or the fact that I think they came in and they said, would you like anything? And she had a craving for potato chips, and so they gave her a bag of potato chips. And uh, this is, you know, I guess back in the day, I don't know, they probably don't do that anymore. And then they said, you can't drink water, you know, because you can't have water for some reason. So then, you know, on top of all the pain, you know, she was thirsty, which was not good. The pain of childbirth is incredible. And yet, it is a pain that is followed by something that brings us such great joy that it makes the memory of that pain fade. And this is true. This is an incredible metaphor that Jesus uses. He says, you know, you're not going to completely forget the pain. You're not going to completely forget it. But there is joy because something good has happened. That suffering has led to something good. We live in a world that does not believe that suffering can lead to something good. We live in a world that would say, get as far away from it as you can the moment it happens. If there's suffering in your life, figure out how to get, a, get rid of it and avoid it. Because nothing good can come of it. And Jesus' word to his disciples is that something good can come from it. Following Jesus does not only bring greater suffering than if you otherwise were not following him. It brings greater joy. It brings such a great joy that it will be better and bigger than the suffering. The word that I think of is eclipse, when one thing blocks out the view of another. This is something that, we, that the disciples are being told to take on faith. Trust me, says Jesus. Trust me that the joy that will come will be greater than the suffering. How many of us need that printed up somewhere in our house? Trust me, the joy that will come will be greater than the suffering. Jesus, right? Maybe while he's carrying me down the beach, you know, wow. with the footprints. Jesus promises them that there is this great joy that's going to come. And he tells them that it's so great. And he tells them why the joy is so great. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. What Jesus knows is true is that they're about to watch him um, by all appearances fail. He's going to fail the trial. He's going to die in the crucifixion. He's going to have the death of a criminal, and he's going to be put in a tomb. 
and in every, by every standard of the world, this Messiah they've dedicated their lives to and been following is going to lose, which means they're going to lose. But what Jesus knows is that when the resurrection comes and they see him again, because he's talking about the resurrection, his bodily resurrection that will happen just a few days later, can you even imagine the roller coaster of emotions to go from being the people who lost miserably to realizing now Jesus has just done something. He has accomplished something that is, let's be honest, disciples, way bigger than we thought he was going to do, right? I mean, we didn't think he was going to go, we didn't think he was going to be that crazy. He defeats death. He conquers the ultimate enemy. The thing that no one would claim to be able to conquer. We're just all worried about this other stuff. Jesus knows that they will experience when in that moment a greater joy because they will see what God accomplished and how it was bigger and better than anything they could have ever hoped for or asked for. He knows that's coming and that they're going to experience that. And he characterizes this great joy as being two things. There's two things that Jesus says to describe why the joy that we find in him after this kind of suffering is so incredible. And they're very important. The first one, he says, is that no one will take it from you. He says, no one will take your joy from you. So greater joy that Jesus promises is a joy that can never be taken away. We experience all kinds of joy in life. We experience all kinds of good things, all kinds of positive things. But those things are temporary. And we can lose those things. We can lose relationships through relationships falling apart or through death. We can lose the, the, the physical comforts that we have, the material wealth and abundance that we have. We can lose the health and the bodies that we have. We can lose any other thing that brings us joy in this life. But Jesus promises his disciples that the joy that they will experience in following him is so good because, first of all, no one can take it away and no set of circumstances can take it away. That's pretty incredible. The disciples had to deal with losing their lives, their respect, their comfort, and at times they all backed away from following Jesus when they were afraid of these things. But they continued to follow him as his disciples eventually. They continued to be faithful to him in these hard times of suffering. And the result was that they would experience a joy that could not be taken away from them. And we know that by how they lived the rest of their lives after his resurrection. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of experiencing a joy in my life that cannot be taken from me no matter what happens. The other thing that he tells them is he says, he characterizes this time in their life as in that day you will ask nothing of me. And commentators universally agree that what Jesus is talking about here, he's, he's going to use this to introduce the concept that they're now going to have a different kind of an asking relationship with God. 
right? You're gonna, that's why we ask for things in Jesus' name, because it's his death on the cross, it's his forgiveness of sins, it's us, his standing in our place before God that actually grants us the ability to be in the presence of God, that grants us the benefit of the Holy Spirit that empowers our life like we talked about last week. But Jesus is also saying here very simply that in that day, this joy will be so great that it will leave you completely fulfilled you won't have anything to ask for. I can't think of a time in my life that I've experienced a joy in something of this world or of this life that either couldn't be taken away or that didn't leave me wanting just a little bit more. Can you imagine a kind of joy in your life that would leave you completely fulfilled? Actually, fulfilled, filled up. This is what Jesus promises his disciples. The path of being a disciple is one that Jesus says does bring great suffering. And choosing to follow him in obedience is not the choice to live perfectly. It's the choice to continue trusting in him and to lean in when that stuff happens. As Joe reminded us a few weeks back when he was preaching on persecution, the worst thing that we can say, especially after this sermon, if you sat here and listened to this, unfortunately you can't say this anymore, you can't say, what is this strange thing that is happening to me as though you're surprised by trials? As we read about in 1 Peter. Don't be surprised when things get hard and say, what is this crazy thing that's happening that I didn't see coming? Because Jesus says it's coming. When we're surprised, we begin to think that there's a way to avoid it. We begin to think that maybe it's just that we took a wrong turn somewhere. Maybe it's just that, you know, this following Jesus thing isn't for me. And we begin to think of ways out of the suffering. You might be here today... Steve, can you go back to that picture from the roller coaster? So, you might be right there today. You might be looking down at something, going... in the midst of this suffering that you're enduring. That he promises you a greater joy. And that sometimes the hardest things for us to have faith in are those promises that Jesus makes. Life is hard because Jesus says it will be hard. Following me doesn't get rid of all of the suffering. It doesn't avoid all the problems. It actually makes those things mean something because those things are within the will of God and he is going to use those things to bring glory to himself, to shape you and sanctify you and ultimately bring you to a place of greater joy than you would have experienced if you hadn't done that before.
If you're in that place right now, know that. And please, I encourage you, I implore you, don't make the choice to go the wrong way at the fork in the road. And say, this would be a great time for a much more convenient, for a much easier faith, for one that looks a lot different. Don't make that mistake and miss out on the joy that he promises us. For some, you've been here, you've been through this, and you have a greater sense of confidence that God will show up and does show up. And can I just tell you that um, if that's the place that you're in, that there is someone in your life, probably in this church, maybe in your family, who needs the encouragement from you to be reminded to keep going, to keep following Jesus, to keep choosing to lean into the suffering because you believe, because you know that there is greater joy that he promises us on the other side of that thing. We need that encouragement from one another. We need that reminder from one another. And it can be so huge coming from those who have actually experienced that kind of suffering themselves. They probably won't say, here's how God fixed all my problems. Here's how God made everything easy again. But what they will say is, here's how God showed up. And here's how I experienced a joy that was greater. The life of discipleship is a roller coaster. It goes up, it goes down, it flips you upside down sometimes when you thought it was a roller coaster that does not. That was the next one we went on, by the way. The next one we went on didn't have the shoulder straps, and we were like, this won't flip us upside down, and it did. And that was actually the one that completely broke my daughter the rest of the way. Sometimes we get on and we're like, nope, didn't pay attention, didn't sign up for it, what's going on here? And I know I, I, I might be making the life of discipleship sound maybe less appealing than you've heard it in the past. But I think one of the mistakes we make, especially in our culture, is we feel the need so much to make following Jesus sound appealing to one another that we try to pretend like it won't involve suffering. Or, or we, we want to believe that there is a way to follow Jesus that's going to be a lot easier than what I'm doing now. What you find is that those aren't really ways of following Jesus. Those are things that are presented, I think, by the enemy to lull us into a place of going, maybe I could take another turn at this path. Maybe go down a road that's a little more lukewarm, that's more convenient, that's more at my pace, and that in the end, that's a better one for me. I'm okay not being a zealot. I'm okay not being a fanatic. I'm okay with this. But I think we must know that, that convenience and comfort aren't always the answer, even if it seems like that in the culture in which we live. Let's pray.